0: Smith, And this is more than one lesson episode uh, 146, I believe. We are recording this a little bit in advance, so hopefully there have not been any major developments since uh, the first week, uh, or I guess second week of November. So uh, I'm trying to think if there's any announcements. There's there's only one that I can think of, which is, as I said uh, two weeks ago, the International Christian Film Festival will be happening in April, Um in Orlando, so you can go uh, Google International Christian Film Festival and check it out. And if you go to 24flix.com, that's the number two, the number four, and then flix.flix.com, you will actually see the award ceremony from last year's International Chr- uh, Fish- sorry, Christian Film Festival, pardon me, um, and you will actually, uh, you will see me presenting the award for best writing. Now, I have mentioned on this show that I deviated from my prepared remarks during that ceremony and talked for way longer than I should have. Most of that got cut out, not because it was not received well, it was, but I think it got cut out for time because they're going to be broadcasting it on a certain, uh, on a certain, I, I think on a network uh, in Orlando, and so they needed to trim that down. But once that has aired, they're actually going to give me the raw footage. And I will uh, post my comments on morethanonelesson.com. So, but anyway, uh, so that's the International Christian Film Festival. In April, I'm going to be there again. Uh, this time I will be doing a full-on 45-minute uh, seminar uh, called Speaking the Language of Film. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, they've been very kind to me. So look that up and uh, try to attend if you can because while, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of Christian film, I have liked what they I did like their general attitude and the idea that they at least embrace film as an art form and not merely a way to only get a message across and even even though I still don't think the films are that good I wound up coming away from last year's festival feeling rather optimistic about at least certain attitudes and coming away uh, having met some really interesting people who I've been in touch with since then and who have shown a commitment to making the best type of film that they can. So anyway, so you can find that uh, at, I think it's ICFF dot I think org, but you know what? I didn't write it down. I apologize for being so unprepared. Look, you'll you'll forgive me for being so unprepared because we've got a lot of show to get to and we've got, an exciting guest. Well, hang on. We have a guest, and his name is Jim Rohner, but we'll get to him in a minute because we also have a co-host. His name is Reed Lackey. Reed, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing all right. Glad all right here. Oh, good. <laughs> the expression on your face says that you're just you couldn't you're not you couldn't be less interested in what we're saying or what I, i'm saying
1: no no I'm, I'm actually i actually really do wish i could go to the international christian film festival you should i'm not come along. i'm not pandering
0: oh yeah if i had, i mean if i had the free time off work and the plane ticket fair i absolutely would look it's far enough in advance you can save the money for the plane ticket and just ask the night the the couple days off work you're welcome thank you <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, I like to to solve problems. (laughs) You know, if the issue is just the money and the time, you've got months uh, to to work it out. Yeah, that's a a fair point. Listeners, you can see Reed at the International uh, Christian Film (laughs) Festival, um, because I'm going to need somebody to take some uh, iPhone photos while I'm doing that seminar. So uh, that's going to be your job. All right. So maybe it'll be a tax write-off or something. (laughs) Uh, So the guest that I mentioned, he's here from... New York City, where they do not know how picante sauce is made. Uh, (laughs) Unlike those folks in San Antonio. (laughs) I apologize, everybody. I'm feeling very silly, apparently. Uh, But yeah, as I said, his name is Jim Rohner. He's been a writer for the site for a while, though not for a while. Uh, Because, oh, still eager to see what your seventh favorite movie is. I think you're a number seven, right?
2: I I think... uh... I think so. Okay. We'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, Jim, welcome. Yes. Thank you. Um, And Tyler, on behalf of all the listeners, I would like to say that yes, we will forgive you not seven times, not 70 times, but 70 times seven times.
0: So, math, so it's 490 490 times? times, Yeah. All right. Well, there's only been 146 (laughs) episodes. Even factoring in many sods. I think I'm good. Yeah, you got some leeway. But that's assuming that I only need to be forgiven once an episode, which I think is probably not a great yeah. assumption. Mm-hmm. So, uh, thank you for that. I appreciate you making a mockery of the Bible. So, uh, moving on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, to gotta go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jim, thanks for stopping by. Um, so, Jim, what are you doing here? You don't live here. What are you doing here?
2: I don't, yeah. I came, I came all the way from, from Brooklyn, New York. Right, that was was that a absolutely yeah. Brooklyn. A, now yeah, I suddenly that, feel like I'm
0: there. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well,
2: well. Yeah. well I, I'm I'm here in Los Angeles only for the second time in my entire life. Uh, I'm I'm here on vacation. It's been three years since I was here last, and uh, certainly last time because I was here for a friend's wedding. I was not able to experience the city on on a, on I guess the terms that I would have liked to, and the terms that the city would have liked me to experience it on, and uh, just a, a bunch of people that I haven't seen in a while, haven't talked. This is actually, despite the fact that I've known Tyler for a while, this is the first time I've seen him face-to-face. He is, yes. as far as I can tell, not some type of cardboard cutout, which is animated.
0: Let's be more specific. Face-to-chest. You're much taller than I thought you were going to be. I am, yeah. I thought, uh, I knew you were tall-ish. Mm-hmm. I thought you like maybe 6'1". Yeah. You were 6'5". 6'5". Still which, am, actually. Yeah, Indeed. Uh, I, don't, I can't, don't care for that kind of joke. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, off-putting how tall you are. Because I don't like I don't like feeling uh less. I don't like feeling mm-hmm. lesser than somebody else. Right. But that's how I feel when I look at you.
2: That would certainly explain the the hour that before the show in which you verbally berated me to, to get me sufficiently on, on a level. Exactly, exactly. Establishing like, your superiority.
0: The key was to get you to slump down <laughs> to my level. Right. So um but yeah, uh now Jim, mm-hmm. along with theoretically writing for more than one lesson, uh you also <laughs> listeners I have known Jim a while and thus I'm comfortable making fun of him as he is uh, comfortable making fun of me but which I will not allow because this is my show Um, but uh, so I do apologize if I'm making anybody uncomfortable not Jim though no if you're uncomfortable so be it (laughs) read I apologize if I'm making you uncomfortable oh no no this is Um, delightful I just would like some popcorn (laughs) (laughs) so uh But, Jim, you have a podcast of your own. I do. What is it called? It is called I Do Movies Badly. What's the premise there? The
2: premise, Ooh, Do you want the long or short version? uh Let's... go middle okay well wow me yeah you you nullified the joke because i was gonna say they're the same version anyway and then you
0: you went oh i'm so sorry that's fine well that's what i do
2: uh well the the premise behind i do movies badly is that i i've been doing uh film criticism really since 2006 writing reviews and i had another another film podcast a while back that tyler was actually a guest on that one as well um so film has been a, a a passion and interest of mine for a long time but um seeing as I got into it sort of late in the game, uh, if you will, I know a lot of friends of mine, you know, they they were, they were into movies since they were eight years old. You know, they saw Jurassic Park in 93, and that's what they wanted to do with their life. Um, and I knew, I kind of came upon it when I was about 20 or 21 years old. So I, I, I approached it kind of late. And because of that, there was a lot of films and filmmakers that I hadn't experienced that um, were deemed important or significant, but I was kind of ignorant of them and sort of felt like I was a uh, sort of less of a, of a film fan because of that. And so I wanted to sort of correct that. And so I do movies badly. If you haven't listened to it, it's a uh, every month I, at the top of the month, I talk to um, another, another guest who recommends a three films specific to a filmmaker or a sub genre of film that, uh, that I need to be exposed to. They'll recommend me three films. And I will watch them and report back on them. It's sort of a, it's sort of homework. It's an, it, it, it's a podcast excuse for me to educate myself on some of the films and filmmakers that, are
0: deemed significant or important, but that I am otherwise oblivious to. And so now, uh, listeners, uh, you can hear more about this and about uh, Jim's journey uh, in doing this podcast over at com. By the time this episode goes up, Jim's episode of Battleship Pretension will be, I think, a couple weeks old. So (laughs) even though it hasn't been recorded yet (laughs) so it's very complex but yeah so you can find out more about that there but uh but yeah it's been it's been a great deal of fun to listen to your reporting on certain movies and certain filmmakers because what I do like is that you've been true to yourself in the sense that you know I think there are some people and certainly when I was younger there are movies that you watch or movies by certain filmmakers that you watch and You, Or at least I, if I I heard that it was great, but I didn't like it or I didn't get it, I would naturally feel like, okay, well, I'm just going to go ahead and say it's great because even if I don't get it, enough people say it's great that it must be. Mm -hmm. Now, while I do agree that when a film achieves a certain status, then there is something something to be said for giving it the benefit of the doubt and thinking like, okay, well, maybe I need to look at it from a different angle or something like Mm -hmm. that. But I think I would just not wanting to be, not wanting to have the unpopular opinion and not yet getting to the point where I, uh, contrarily don't have the popular opinion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just a thing that I would absorb. And, and I feel like listening to your show has been something of a breath of fresh air because if you don't like something or you, by your own admission, don't get something, uh, you're very honest about it. And, uh, you know, hear it more than one lesson. We're all about honesty and vulnerability and, mm-hmm you know, telling people what you really think and feel. And so, uh, so yeah, it's, you can find, so we, you can find it on, in iTunes, mm-hmm. but then you can also find, uh, episodes at battleship com, And so, uh, I highly recommend it. I've been on the show. I believe I was, was that your first, uh, yeah, guest? Tyler,
2: Tyler was the very first guest talking about David Mamet back in September of last year. That's right. And then you were also the guest on a, a sort of an impromptu Halloween episode last, last year in which we talked about, um. Uh, was it Bri- yeah, Bright of Frankenstein? That's
0: correct, yes. So. Absolutely. A wonderful film. Yes, it was great. So, uh, yeah, so I just wanted to let people know about your show. I will say now, there is no swearing on this show, mm-hmm. but I can't speak to that regarding other shows, including my other show. <laughs> but uh, there is, I believe, a swear word within the first five seconds of every episode of your show.
2: <laughs> There's, Yeah, I... Uh, I I, I am true to myself sometimes much to the sh- chagrin of myself in regards to, uh, it, it's funny that I, that I am a podcaster and I hate listening to my own voice. Um, I, i also frequently hate listening to the sound of my own voice, uh, rattle on and prattle on through, uh, through a movie that I did not necessarily understand. Um, but I, I, I do swear fairly regularly in my, in my regular day, which I don't know if that's
0: controversial for people to hear on this show. But Watch out. I, <laughs> uh, but I, um, well, and also your theme song kicks off <laughs> with a swear word. That's yeah. what I'm referring to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you that, get to uh, hear that, Val course. Kilmer swear. Yeah. At the beginning of every episode. Yeah, and
2: if, if anyone out there hasn't seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, they should they should do so immediately. Absolutely. I think uh, that was a great movie. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I also do swear fairly regularly. Um. On on I do movies badly. A lot of times it's frustration with either myself or, uh, whatever I might have been seeing on screen from. Indeed. The filmmaker. So.
0: Yeah, you swore so much in regards to Dr. Zhivago. (laughs) I don't know. You you talked about Dr. Zhivago, right? (laughs) Wait a second. Is Zhivago a swear word?
1: I'm not up on my Russian. Mm, Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, Zhivago. Okay, Yeah, Yeah. Because it sounds like it really could be, if it's not, it should (laughs) be. (laughs)
0: Um, But yeah, so so listeners, check that out. It's a really good show. I like it a lot. Um, But we've got stuff to talk about because... What we're talking about today is a movie that I had not seen Mm. up until a few days ago. Wonderful. And one that I grew up hearing about. I I remember friends saying, like, oh, have you seen this crazy film? And I remember uh, walking along in video stores and seeing the VHS cover of it and thinking, how very strange. It looks It's a, it's a very, the VHS cover specifically was very, uh, unique. Mm -hmm. It almost had a Sasquatch quality to it (laughs) because you had a guy just kind of lumbering up some stairs and looking back at you. And, uh, it was just a really, I just, I had heard so much and I was like, I'll get to it eventually. Uh, and then you said, well, we definitely should talk about this movie. And it gave me an excuse to watch. It was very, which was very exciting. Mm -hmm. And I am under obligation to tell this story, it's a very short story. Okay. It could be longer if I wanted it to be. But um, Jacob's Ladder on Blu-ray was available at my local Target for $5. Okay. I kept not buying it, even though I knew we were going to be talking about it. <laughs>
2: okay.
0: So uh, then the time came, and I was like, okay. And so this, this past Friday, and it's like, okay, I'm going to go uh, finally purchase it. But they didn't ha- uh, they didn't have it. But what I did first is I was hanging out, I was having dinner with a couple of friends, and then we said like, hey, let's go to Starbucks after this. And I'm like, you know what? What else do we have to do? I was like, well, I gotta go to Target. He's like, let's all go to Target. (laughs) And so we turned into what we uh, stupidly called uh, Valley Crawl 2015, where (laughs) we just went to various places in the valley. At least that was the plan. Here's what it turned out to be. We went to four targets in the valley. Because it wasn't at the first one, then it wasn't at my local target. Then we checked the Target app, and it said, oh, it's at this third one. We went to that one. It wasn't there. We checked with an employee who said, it's in the back room of this fourth Target, because <laughs> wow. they had had this $5 deal as a tie-in to Halloween. But once Halloween was over, they shifted oh, everything okay. out. Yep. So we finally went to that fourth Target. <clears throat> uh got it five bucks no problem and then drove our way back to where our cars were and so
2: <laughs> so drive th- back to a car to drive back to somewhere else indeed
0: so, so that was Valley Crawl 2015 I went with my friend uh, my friends Amsi and Barnabas and uh, so it turned into more of just a tour of uh, various targets we were almost like like uh, regional managers just checking to see how everything looked but Jacob's so, long and winding road oh no Sunday's. question about it <laughs> wow so, uh, so we finally got it, and thankfully, I would say, it was worth the trouble. <laughs> it is a film that I enjoyed tremendously, but right. we will uh, get more uh, to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. So, you picked this movie. I did. And you were fairly definitive about it. I was. Why?
2: That's a very good question, because it's a... Uh... I, I wanted to I wanted to take notes on on what I was going to be talking about, but then after I watched the I watched the movie actually today I rewatched it with a, a friend with who I was staying, and then we just kind of started getting caught up in nostalgia and talking about the old times. And one thing came to another, and suddenly I had to get in the car and, and head to head to North Hills, which was a fabulous trip. Thank you, Los Angeles, and the four hundred five. Um, <laughs> sorry about that.
0: So uh, no, you're not. I'm not that sorry. Yeah,
2: <laughs> uh, but I had always. I guess it'd be it, 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 Jacob's Ladder has been a film which has always, ever since I first saw it, has always kind of stuck with me for various reasons. But honestly, not not for a, not from a really a, a faith perspective until really within the last couple of years. Because the first time that I saw it, the first time that I reached out or not reached out but sought it out was actually not for anything having to do with faith, but because of the genre, the horror genre specifically. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know, Rita, I know you're you're a horror fan. I don't yeah, know if you, if you've ever heard of. Um, there's a series of horror video games called Silent Hill oh yes mm-hmm. um, and I was I was big into those games when I was uh, younger, especially like in high school and really being big into the first one and, and just kind of reading about what influenced that game and it was stuff like, um, Ray Bradbury books. Right. Uh, it was uh, a lot of old horror and like you know stuff like typical things you want like Stephen King and, and mm-hmm. George Romero and that kind of stuff. But then also Jacob Ladder was mentioned and it was I've never heard of that before, so I, I wanted to seek it out. And, and certainly, um, if anyone is familiar with both the game Silent Hill and the film Jacob's Ladder, you can clearly see a lot of the influences from right. the uh, from you know rustic settings, from things that are deteriorating, from the strange chain link uh, fences and, and things that are all over the place, and also just this idea of creatures which or like or, for lack of a better word creatures but something which is sort of the manifestation of something which is psychological within a person was always very interesting to me so it was really the horror which drew me into it and then as i went through college i went through, i went to a christian college and as i started kind of exploring my faith more and then re-watching the movie and kind of seeing oh hey there's there's some pretty clear religious symbolism there which seems pretty obvious considering the title jacob's ladder mm-hmm. i mean we all we all know that story um, when Jacob was trying to fix a light bulb, when he fell off the ladder,
0: was that? Was oh, I so, hate you so much. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I have no doubt that there's some translation out there that has that. Maybe New Living, but uh, how many Jacobs does it take to fix a light bulb? Uh, it's oh, a, a punchline in there
2: somewhere. You're gonna make
0: me almost swear. <laughs> Thank
2: <you so> much. <laughs> um, but and, and just even even certain things like um, I mean. The, the Elizabeth Penny character, her name is Jezebel. We know what the significance of yeah. Jezebel is from the Bible. And um I mean the the son with the name of Gabriel and even just a lot of the imagery and just kind of seeing that there was some really clear religious symbolism in there. And so then after I kind of recognize that, going back a little bit a little bit later and, and watching it again and kind of seeing like, okay, what can I what is this trying to say which is kind of a naive approach to a film like what is it trying to say as though there's only one specific thing (laughs) because i think if you actually would listen to interviews with uh bruce joel rubin who wrote the screenplay he pulls from all sorts of different influences he pulls from the bible but he also pulls from like the uh i think like the uh like some not tahitian but like the book of the dead from other cultures like so he (laughs) pulls from kind of all over the place for this ultimately for an an exploration of just what it sort of is to die but um, I mean, one of the the biggest tenets of, of Christianity, obviously, is that we are not living for this world; we are living for you know for the next one. But um, because we are finite beings, I just always found it fascinating the idea of like when you know when this when we when we leave this moral coil, what is what is afterwards, and what is that what does that look like, or or you know what is the concept of, of heaven or hell sort of look like? Not just in in a like a, a Dante's Inferno kind of, but I mean I mean what is the Bible says kind of so little about what heaven and hell are actually sort of like that those concepts are so fascinating mm-hmm. and not just in, in the sense of like is one place a, like a, a paradise in clouds and one place is a, is, a, is a pit of fire but even psychologically and emotionally what can heaven and hell be like right. to people and so that that's what I that's what I ultimately find to be the most fascinating part about Jacob's ladder is that idea of of what heaven and hell could be, not just in regards to what is it like after you die, but what can a personal heaven and hell be like to a person?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, There's a, there really is a lot going on with the film. And, and while I feel like uh, this is something that I said to read uh, after the film, there are not a lot of movies out there that I feel like should be remade.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But there are movies that I will see that I feel like would be ripe for a remake. And this is one of them. Mm-hmm. I feel like audiences, although maybe it wouldn't be as big of a twist, not that not that I think the ending is much of a twist. I mean it's kind yeah. of sprinkled throughout as a as a possibility. But yeah. um but the 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 concepts in it I think audiences may be a bit more familiar with, but that would that familiarity could allow any filmmaker that would remake it to be a bit more experimental, Mm -hmm. uh, with the reality that they're presenting us with. And so I think that would actually be kind of, kind of great. And it would allow, you know, if you get the right actors in there, they could deliver some really wonderful performances. But, but yeah, so there's, there's definitely a lot going on in the film and there was a lot of stuff that resonated with me. Uh, some stuff I thought could have been done better, but I still appreciated what they were trying to do. Um, now you, would you say you love this film? Um, I I think I would have
2: said that up until when I rewatched it today where I, I do kind of see like it, it's it's kind of funny when you watch a, a film on your own and then you're kind of like there's so many things that occur to you then you watch it with someone or with a the crowd then you kind of like not that you're embarrassed but you almost kind of see like oh there's a that like you kind of see how someone else is reacting you kind Absolutely. of see like, oh this, this, this doesn't mean the same thing to this person mm-hmm. as it did to me and you kind of see like you almost kind of see like where they're coming from but I, I am I do really love this film and this is what is a is one especially with horror films that if they've never heard about it, it'll be kind of near the top of the list of things that I would recommend for them, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't know. Um, I, I know one of the things that I appreciate about it, and you you talk about like remaking it and. One of the things I think I like about it is sort of how restraint it actually is. And my, my concern being with how films are these days, especially mainstream horror stuff, is that there's such a tendency to to show and to have some 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 sort of a spectacle. Sure. And um, one thing that Adrian, is it Lynn or Line? I never know how to pronounce. I've heard both. Okay. But I uh,
1: usually say Lynn, but I have heard both as well. Yeah. Let's say
2: Lynn. Okay. So one thing that I know Adrian Lynn has said in interviews is that this the initial script was a lot more explicit in regards to demonic and angelic sort of beings in the movie and he Mm -hmm. it was adrian lynn who kind of decided to scale back and take them out because in his opinion um you can't really show something which is so clearly a demon without kind of having two reactions one of them being sort of like humor and not taking a film seriously Mm -hmm. because how do you show um you know kind of the quintessential devil figure with like horns and that sort of thing and just automatically kind of separate it but by making things a little bit more human and kind of blurring that line you you can you can approach it on a more realistic level as opposed to just sort of like if you have a human drama where all of a sudden demons show up it's like yeah this isn't nearly as effective as opposed to a human drama where there are human-like things which are tormenting this person it kind of makes it it kind of grounds it in i know it's a horror film but it kind of grounds it in a little bit more of a reality yeah in a way and and i, I worry that a, a modern remake might push it more in that of like here are these demonic forces and here are these things, which kind of make it ultimately a, would lose some of the ambiguity, which I do like about the movie and kind of make it much more a spiritual warfare kind of film.
0: Yeah. uh, And I think we'll actually delve more into that in a moment. Um, But yeah, it's a, it's a film that I was, I'm very happy that though I had been hearing about it my whole life, I knew literally nothing about it Mm. going in. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I, (laughs) When I finally purchased it at that fourth Target, my friend Barnabas uh, explained to the checkout girl, who undoubtedly could not have cared less, but explained all the stuff we went through to get it. And she's like, wow, is it good? And I was like, I don't know. And she's like, what's it about? And I said, uh, well, let's just take a look at the back here. Yep. And so, uh, and as I read it, I was like, well, this sounds pretty good. And so I went in only knowing that people thought it was good. And that was it. That was mm-hmm. That was where my knowledge ended. And so... Uh, seeing what it was and going on on the emotional, spiritual, and intellectual journey was something that I found rather invigorating. And while it certainly is not a perfect film, there are things that I think could have been done differently. Um, I wound up having a great deal of appreciation for it. Now, our friend Reed here mm. <laughs> hates this movie. <laughs> I might be overstating, but I don't think so. Reed, prove me wrong.
1: Well, um, I overstatement I'm not gonna prove you wrong okay on, but um, uh, no I mean honestly this is um, this is actually the first film that that uh, I've talked about on this show that that I that I didn't totally care for mm. Um I should say, like, you know, just briefly, like, I, I basically, when I talk about films, use the generalized five-star rating system. Five means, I love it, it's a favorite. Uh, four, I like a lot about it, but I don't think it's perfect. Three, I like it, and that's where Jacob's Ladder lands for mm-hmm. me. Um, uh, three would be the kind of thing, and this is how I feel about Jacob's Ladder, where it's like, I can I can watch it, I can appreciate A, what they're trying to do, uh, B, several things that I think they do well, but a, a lot of times for me, there's a Uh, A problem that I have, kind of a barricade, where I can capture the theme that I think they're trying to explore, and I think they do it effectively enough that I can capture at least some degree of what I think they're trying to say about that theme. But something either in the substance of the narrative or the way uh, or the conclusions that they draw, something doesn't quite gel for me to the degree that I don't have a strong emotional response to it. I saw it for the same exact reasons you did. Mm. I'm a huge horror fan. Jacob's Ladder was a classic mm-hmm. in a genre that I absolutely love—not not merely uh, horror, but also psychological horror, yep. in which you know iconic films like Silence of the Lambs and 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 things that I've that I've loved that that are among my favorite films. And so I was like, I need to see Jacob's Ladder. And the first time I saw it uh, was probably about maybe 20 years ago. And uh, so when I saw it, it was it was relatively new mm-hmm. um and and so i saw it and i had a particular response to it at the time which was basically what i'm describing now where it is like eh, it was okay like that like that was good i didn't really care for this i didn't really care for that and so i was interested to see it again and when we saw it again i told tyler in in a rare moment i felt exactly the same way i did originally when i saw it mm-hmm. so like seeing it it didn't go down in my mind Like it was exactly the the things I liked about it. I still liked the things I didn't like about it. I still didn't like. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, but it didn't go up either. And and that happens a lot with films where uh, it'll fluctuate one way or another. But in this one, I so I feel pretty confident in saying like, no, that's that's just a film that I don't respond to very strongly in a positive way. But it's not one that when people do say they love it Mm -hmm. or that they do find a lot out of it, I'm not going to get in some argument with them that I think they're dumb. I definitely think there's a lot. A value in the film I just didn't respond to it very strongly myself and I think a large part of it which I'm sure we'll get into is some of the some of the conclusions that they draw um, and particularly some of the themes that they're playing with um, I don't think uh, this is a, a very lofty statement but um, I have some difficulty sometimes when you are very good at expressing your theme but to my estimation, not as good at substantiating it in your narrative. So so you've, you've been very clear about your theme to where I understand exactly what was supposed to be going on here, but then I look back and I go like, well, then why this? Mm-hmm. And why mm-hmm. this? And why did you do this? If this is what you're playing at, then why did you make your character do this? Mm-hmm. And why was this going on to begin with? Um, so... Uh, Like, for instance, the first example that comes to mind, can we go ahead and get into specifics? The first example that comes to mind is um, they want me to feel, I feel, Mm -hmm. I I think they do, they want me to feel an emotional response. You even asked me about it after we finished, that they want me to feel an emotional response to the fact that his son has died. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the way that they even introduce this is um, they want me to feel an emotional connection with this. And there's a lot of mystery surrounding the film. Yep. There's a great deal of things which are not explained. Uh, and even though some characters directly state what the situation is <laughs> multiple times through the film, and but yep. they don't they don't definitively reveal it until the the final frame. Um, that uh, when he. The way that we learn about the condition of his son is that he's flipping through a, a handful of papers from two people who at the – or pictures who at the time we don't know who those people are that have dropped it off, yeah. which is great because that builds the mystery. But then he sees this picture of the cute kid from Home Alone, and so when he sees that – that,
0: that wonderful actor from Party Monster, as we all know.
1: <laughs> and so like he sees that picture and immediately has a reaction to it, yeah. and he begin, he begins to weep. And the way Adrian Lin or, the, or Bruce Joel Rubin, whoever's call that was, the way they choose to respond to me sitting there in that moment going like, yeah, why is he crying about that again, is for uh, Jezebel to simply tell us, yeah. Yeah. like, oh, is that your son who died yeah, you know, yeah, before yeah. you went to Vietnam? Yeah. You know, and, and so, to <laughs> yeah. me, there were, there were moments like that where I was like, well, now you've obliterated the mystery. And for me, as an emotional response, you've now given me no real opportunity to connect or invest in that relationship Mm -hmm. because you've already told me why he's crying about it. And I feel like it, and again, I'm not a filmmaker. Uh, I'm only saying how I would respond to the moment. I feel like it might have been a stronger choice to have her either not say anything. I would have loved it if she didn't say anything about the picture, but if she had just leaped to what happens like 30 seconds later, where she just doesn't even ask him why he's crying, just grabs it and says, yeah. I don't like things that make you cry, mm, then yeah. we as the audience don't necessarily know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So to me, that would have invested me a bit more in knowing, like, why did he cry about that? Yeah. And and so I think there were, I, I won't go into any more, but I think there were a few choices that the film made that I had an almost identical reaction to, and mm. I think that inhibits my ability to really respond strongly right. to
2: it. And, and I understand comments like that especially because i was i was watching it today with a friend who hadn't seen it in a long time and he he made comments like that too like oh good thing they she did she just explained what this was no, right you know, right right, right set right. it up um so I, I get that and i also i get i get what you're kind of saying where it's like they, they they've got the uh they've got the grandiose things taken care of but on, on, a, on a macro is it macro or micro level on like smaller thing? level yeah. that's yeah. micro yeah, yeah. yeah so they things are clunky mm-hmm. um and, and i guess I mean, I guess we'll we'll get to the ending eventually, so sure. we'll talk about it right now. But that's that's another one where why, when I was watching it today, there was even stuff with the ending that like oh, kind of mm-hmm. irks me, which which is kind of why I say like I I won't say that it's great because there are some things that hold it back, but it's pretty close to being a great film, uh, and I wonder if that's because Adrian Lyne himself is like, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of Unfaithful. I think that's a great movie. I Love it, but. I, I don't know if anyone would consider Adrian Lynn a great director by any means, like a, a pretty competent one, surely. But I think the, the argument that
0: I would make is that he is an actor's director. Mm. And so in, in the scenes, like the ones you're just talking about where the writing is clunky, mm. the acting for me sells it to the point that, yeah, I know the senior, you know, the, the senior talking about when, you know, it's like, is that your son who died? And already I'm just like, Okay, well, I probably could have figured that. And then she's like, before you went to Vietnam, I was like, wow, you're just saying everything. <laughs> um, and that bothered me, except Elizabeth, Elizabeth Pena, God rest her soul at this point. Uh, she did? She passed away recently. Yeah, probably was, in the it, last year, I oh, think. Maybe no, even it, a few months ago. Yeah, it was,
1: I, I'm almost positive it was 2015. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, was, it might have only been a few months ago. Yeah,
0: yeah it was, uh, and it, it uh, bummed me out, because I, I haven't seen her in that much, but she's in a wonderful film called Lone Star. That well, uh, I don't I know if you've also, seen it, but yeah, it's great. Um, and so, uh, hmm. Sorry, I was thinking of Lone Star and immediately <laughs> realized it'd be a really good companion film to uh, this other movie. <laughs> but anyway, so. Uh, but her performance, I like her performance throughout. But mm. um, in that moment, she does what she can to sell that, and then to me, when he's looking through it, not merely when he cries, but there's this wonderful like. Where the film resonates with me is when I feel f- – when I see either myself or experiences I've had or things that I've thought uh, in the film. Like, there are a couple moments where I where I kind of tear up. And one of them is when he's looking at that picture and he says something. It's just such a – this is a good line and delivered wonderfully. Whereas he's like, I wasn't expecting to see him today.
1: Oh, And yeah. just like
0: mm-hmm. – and I've, you know, I've experienced that, like, looking through old photos or something like that, or, like, my mom will post something on Facebook, mm-hmm. and there's, like, my dad or my grandpa or something like that. It's like, bah. I wasn't, you know, don't get me wrong, it's not, like, it's terrifying or anything, but it's like, I wasn't expecting to feel these things today, right. and I wasn't ready for that. Because usually, you know, if it's someone that has passed away a while ago, if, if you're looking at a photo or you're... Thinking about them, it's something you're doing on purpose. So for that to just be put in your face suddenly, and just be jarred by it, like that's some that's a moment that Tim Robbins plays very well. Mm-hmm. And then Elizabeth Pena, when she grabs all the photos and says, "I don't like things that make you cry," like the acting elevates that scene beyond the rather clunky writing. And so, mm-hmm. I, and I think that is a function of Adrian Lynn because Unfaithful has wonderful acting. Yes, you know, and. And one thing that Reed, you and I were talking about is that this is maybe I'm reluctant to say, but this might be like my favorite Tim Robbins performance. He's yeah. He's not someone I immediately jump to as like a great actor, but in the right role, he can be great. And there's nothing about this role that screams Tim Robbins, but he certainly makes it his own Mm -hmm. to the point where I can't imagine anybody else playing it. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, So, yeah, moments like that um, where – and that's what, for me, on the five-star scale, I would give it four. Mm. And I think because, yes, it's clunky, and, yes, it has a very uneven method of execution when it comes to putting its theme out there and putting its – the real story it's telling, putting that out there while it's a little uh, uneven there. The I think some I think like the the general emotional tone, and then the the performances I think pull everything together, so that it feels like one cohesive package. And so that's why, among other things, which I'll get to in a moment. But like that's why it worked so well for me, and why I'm able to absolutely acknowledge those flaws with the script, but also put them aside. You Mm. know. Um, this the the writer has done a number of other things. He wrote, ni- uh, sorry, he wrote Ghost, My Life, which I've seen, uh, Deep Impact, and The Time Traveler's Wife. Now I have seen Ghost. I have seen, oh, I guess, yeah, I've seen everything except The Time Traveler's Wife. He's done other stuff as well, but um, you know, those are not films that I consider to be remarkably subtle. <laughs> and so, if nothing else, I actually look at what this movie is and. I'm kind of. Uh, it feels like he's taking risks with it, you know, compared to these other films. So, well, and I,
1: I apologize for interrupting you, but the the didn't you say earlier that like the script originally was not quite so subtle, and yeah, that Adrian Lin yeah, actually it, it, was, it, it was it was it was much
2: more kind of explicit in in demonic in, in 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 what you're what you would kind of think of as your standard sort of demonic figures, and Adrian Lin was like, no, no, we got we got to scale this back because this will then be met with derision if we kind of make it like that and actually there are scenes um and i don't know so you have you have the blue right now i do so i I don't know if they're on there because i i have the old dvd copy of it but with the with the four by three dvd menu at the beginning which is mm -hmm. the most unimpressive thing you'll ever see but there are additional scenes that were shot but not included in the film which Mm -hmm. make it a especially an ending sequence which makes it seem like it's a little bit more of an external conflict and I think I would certainly be comfortable with because I think one of the great, one of the things that this film does really well is make it seem like he's, he, he's being haunted or, or, still attached to these things because of, because of himself rather than because of some type of external factor. And there's an ending scene, which makes it, in my opinion, makes it seem like it's a little bit more of an external conflict, yeah. which Take some of the fun away from it. I think. Well, fun is the wrong word, but right. take some of the uh, the interest or the interpretation away from it. I think.
1: Well, and I think they even uh, they, uh, this is something you and I mentioned as well that it's like uh, one of the th- one of the things that really just uh, dings the film for me is the decision of that uh, that text at the end. Yeah. yeah. Where yeah. where it kind of flavors. You know, you've talked a lot about this, and I definitely agree that that a film is kind of about how it ends mm-hmm. and the the two or three and especially the final note that it chooses to let you exit the theater with yeah. is uh, is at least vital to understanding the film if not the, the whole crux of understanding the film so the fact that you know if if it had just ended and we haven't been very explicit about what the ending is and i won't right now but the uh that like if it had just ended in that in that moment in the hospital like with those couple of comments mm-hmm. then then that would have been one thing but then they choose to tack on yeah this uh th- this external factor that you're talking about like mm-hmm. wait a second was this a was this an anti-drug piece? Like, was that what the, was that what this whole yeah. thing was? Was this just the you know because a lot of the uh, as they're going through the scenes of the film, I noticed it a lot more the second time around that like so many of the the posters like in the subway or yeah. or uh, ads on the wall or something like that are all like anti-drug uh, stuff and mm-hmm. and that is a component of the plot. Right. But given the broader things with which they're exploring, the broader internal things, yeah. I would yeah. figure that that was a red herring. And the text at the end
2: makes me feel like maybe they didn't mean it to be a red herring. And and that I will absolutely give to you because, I, and this was something I noticed too upon rewatching today, that the, I mean, one of the one of the reasons that it's called Jacob's Ladder is not just because of the symbolism of Jacob's Ladder is where Jacob wrestled with God, you know, yeah. and that sort of thing, but also that idea of um, it's sort of... Not even implied, but sort of stated that one of the reasons he might be seeing all these strange things is that his unit in Vietnam was experimented on by this um, extremely powerful hallucinogenic called, you know, so-called the ladder, Mm -hmm. which you think is sort of like, oh, that's that's MacGuffin. That's going to that's going to be something which on the surface is going to explain this When Really, it's that's sort of a. A physical manifestation or explanation of whatever is going on internally but then but they keep that up until the very end like it's actually excuse me it's actually right after that scene in which they talk about the latter that they then is able to sort of accept whatever and then you know the film then ends so it's like it can't even be a macguffin because it's sort they sort of carry that all the way to the end yeah and so that that is sort of weird that it's like you think it's going to be something like oh one possible explanation but then sort of a misdirect and it's sort of no. Not that. It sort of kind of goes right into it.
0: And actually, I sort of like that because it's almost like the film is taking you for a long time down this path of, you know, you have characters talking about demons. You have someone, you have them saying like, oh, you look like an angel right now. You definitely have spiritual elements. Mm-hmm. And then when that scene comes along and the and that uh, scientist explains about the testing, I remember part of me was just like, well, that's still interesting, but that renders everything that we've been seeing as purely psychological. Yeah. And it's just like, and that's again, still fascinating, but it, it's a little bit diminishing. But then when you discover what's actually going on with that ending, it's like, okay, so we are, we were in fact in the spiritual, uh, but the, but in this case, the spiritual was brought on by this other thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, well that's interesting. Cause the way these two things interact, Um, but then when you have that text at the end, I was saying to, to read, um, you know, what that text reveals, which is that there actually were these, it was reported that there were like units in Vietnam Mm -hmm. that were, that had, you know, chemicals tested on them and stuff. It's like, that's huge. That's a horrifying idea. And yet to end on that note with that text as big and as, as, unnerving an idea as that is you've now actually reduced your film significantly yeah if you had left that out and kept this being kept this about like all the different things that the film is tackling including the spiritual but you decide to have that yeah it's like so that's so not the you know the last images of him walking uh, spoilers everybody if you haven't (laughs) seen jacob's ladder we're moving into a different section now um know the last sequences of him walking up the stairs with his son into the light and it's a very it's kind of surreal it's kind of in a way it's sad but it's also triumphant and then you reveal oh my gosh he's been he's been dead this whole time struggling to stay alive and mm-hmm. that sort of thing and this has all been a projection of his mind whatever yeah and it's just like wow that's really profound that's really interesting and here's this it's like wait <laughs> what this isn't an oliver stone film what, what are you doing here like it just it leaves me I don't know the film should leave you just sort of reeling yeah and just like back on your heels, but just sort of having to rethink everything you've just seen and really try to take it in and make sense of it, and then come to this conclusion of like, oh my gosh, there's so much going so much more going on here than I thought, and then to include that thing, it's just it reminds me of <laughs> in a different way, but it reminds me of this that um. Did you ever see The Edge? No. With uh, Alec Baldwin and, and Anthony Hopkins? Uh, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, yeah. yeah, So it's about these guys. It's written by David Mamet. Um, oh, okay. And these guys out in the wild, they have to fight this bear. But it's also, the, it's not merely the bear. They also have to survive. And they also hate each other. There's all these things going on. Um, and it ends with, a, with a, a big pronouncement that actually means a lot, where someone says, how did so-and-so die? And he said, saving my life. But in fact, that's not how it happened, but that's how this character is choosing to see it and at least choosing to spin it. So there's like forgiveness there. There's all these things. Fade out. And then the first credit, Mm -hmm. and this is mentioned very uh, distinctly in Roger Ebert's review. The first thing that pops up is not directed by so-and-so. It's not, you know, any of those. It's we would like to dedicate this film to Bart the Bear who played now Bart the Bear in the 90s was like he was the bear in the film The Bear. Mm-hmm. If the, if you had a big scary or when he was younger cuddly bear he was probably, probably uh, played by Bart the Bear. <laughs> awesome. Uh profound note of forgiveness and perspective on life. We'd like to dedicate this to an animal that cannot read this. <laughs> like I mean it's just and I remember Roger Ebert was is writing a very favorable review. And then he says, and then the film shoots itself in the foot Mm -hmm. by ending on this note. And you know, the story is over, but so ostensibly we could just judge it on that. But the director wanted to end with this and it's just, and he says, he goes, now look, I'm sure Bart's a hell of a bear. (laughs) But when it comes right down to it, you've, you've taken a really profound ending and made it. So the, the, the The final text on the screen for Jacob's Ladder is not as silly as the Bart the Bear thing, but it still is just like, like you're. I was so ready to embrace this. I yeah. was embracing it, and then it's just like, oh wait, is that what I'm supposed to be getting out of this? I don't know. We've been we've been focusing on it maybe a little too long, but that's just a, a thing that it seemed like a big misstep to me.
2: No, but I think it is important to focus on because it's certainly not a it's not a third act twist that ruins the movie, but it certainly is something where. It draws so much attention to a, a clearly substantial external factor. When, like I said before, the most interesting part of Jacob's ladder to me is is the internal struggle and that idea of like, um, and maybe we can even then kind of use this a transition into into the, these grander thematic things that we're talking about. But when it's when it is that idea of someone who is dying and. and can't really at first let go of the fact that he is about to die and, and what that conflict looks like and how mm-hmm. those things sort of manifest itself. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, it's like, let's talk about this real thing that maybe happened. Like, well, I'm not interested in the real thing that may yeah, have happened because right. the, the latter as a drug in the film should have just been a side note. Yeah. Because that should have, if, if there's anything else, the latter was just some, and, and this is just my interpretation, but I think it's sort of what the common interpretation is supposed to be is that story of the latter and of his friends, um, because the, the Vietnam stuff is is happened in real time, like the, the mm-hmm. scene that opens a movie of them fighting, like that's that's actually what's happening, and then everything else is sort of, for lack of a better term, not happening. Yeah. But uh, but just that that side story of the ladder and and that sort of thing, like it should be, it should just work as a MacGuffin, and should just work as his mind, kind of ma- manufacturing and manifesting in in a way that makes <clears throat> that makes these things make sense to him, and really then. Then after he is able to kind of realize like, oh, I'm, I'm dying and, and let it go. That's when, you know, that's when we get back to him with Gabriel and, and, and going up the stairs and that sort of thing. So it, it does draw attention to this real substantial external thing, which is sort of outside of the scope of the story, which we're not concerned about that.
0: And also why would he, if we're seeing all this other stuff as a mental project, mental or spiritual projection of his, why would that be in there?
2: It's a, it's a very another very good question. Cause yeah. I, I was talking about that today too, where, where, um, it it sort of it sort of does make sense where okay so he and his commando he and his buddies like did all kill each other because of an influence of a psychotropic drug right but there's no way he would know that right. i mean there's no way that as he's sitting there in the helicopter or in or on a gurney dying there's no way that he would come to the conclusion oh, this is all because me and my friends have been drugged. Right. Yeah, it's almost sort of like they got so caught up in in all these grandiose themes and this this tapestry they were trying to paint that they sort of painted themselves into a corner, and they're like, oops.
0: Yeah. And you know what? There would have even been... This wouldn't have made everything better, but if they had simply cast Matt Craven as the doctor attending to him... Yeah. It doesn't explain everything. Mm -hmm. But it at least acknowledges like, okay, maybe... This doctor was having this conversation in the same physical space as his body when he was like in a coma or something. yeah, and it worked its way into his into his brain. Yep. at the very least, you could do that again. It explains nothing. It wouldn't actually work. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it at least acknowledges that the director's like, "Hey, wait a second, <laughs> we got to do something to make this uh, feasible." Yeah, and I actually okay,
1: so I feel I, I feel the need uh, briefly to uh, to kind of extrapolate. It's been it's it's been bugging me since we first brought it up uh-huh. um, that that a lot of your listeners, many of whom uh, are not religious, mm-hmm. may actually not know the story of Jacob's Ladder. Okay, and and one of the things that I think is so interesting is as we're talking about this, I'm like, "Oh man, if they had left the drug stuff out." then the Jacob's Ladder reference mm-hmm. would have been that much more profound and impactful. Because very briefly, the Jacob's Ladder story is that Jacob has um, uh, Jacob was the son of Isaac. He was the brother of Esau, and he deceived his father, who was going blind, and stole his brother's birthright. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when he did that, and it was discovered, his brother is going to try to kill him. So, Jacob has to flee. And when he runs away, the very first place that he stops just to rest, he he lays down, I believe, I don't have my Bible in front of me, but I believe the place is either called Peniel or Bethel. And I can't remember which one it is. I think it's Peniel. But when he lays down and goes to sleep, that night he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees uh, a ladder going from earth to heaven with angels and demons walking up and down the ladder. And so, when he's, when he's, Seeing this dream, there's nothing to it but that. Angels and demons walking up and down the ladder. Um, It might only... Actually, I really need to reread the story. It might only be angels. I think it's it's only Um, angels. Yeah, but so he sees angels walking up and down the ladder. And then when he wakes up, and this is the part that I wanted to key in on. When he wakes up, I remember what he says because I always thought it was so beautiful. When he wakes up, he says to himself, I had no idea that God was here. Like, when he wakes up, he says, I had no idea that God was here. Which I think, again, remove the drugs... And I think that plays so much better into what he's actually experiencing because that whole thing of... What am I going through? What does all this mean? What is you know? What do all these things happen? And then, the film kind of comes towards the end of, a, of of its narrative to a conclusion of like, hey, this has actually been purposeful and intentional to help you do X, Y, Z thing. And then, of course, you know, he's ascending a stairwell, not a ladder, mm-hmm. but he's ascending a stairwell with his son named Gabriel. You know, like <laughs> like all of these things. And and you really could walk away with a sense of like. Wow, I was going through all this, I had no idea God was here. Yeah. But again, they tack on the text at the end. And it's and, and I don't want to beat him up for that because clearly he uh, I you know, I've never met the man, nor will I ever, doubtfully. It's it's like I don't know what his intention was behind putting there. I just know as a as a film viewer who's trying to wrap his head around what the film seems to be exploring, that just diluted so much of the potential of what could have been there mm-hmm. for me. Particularly because you're referencing a biblical narrative that has a potentially profound connection to what you're exploring, mm-hmm. um, and and then it just it just sort of goes away. Um, so anyway, I just had to uh, I felt the need in case listeners didn't know exactly what that story was that that's that's what the biblical narrative is. I think it's either Genesis, like it's in it's Genesis in the twenties, like 22 or 23 or something like
0: that. Yeah. It's actually a story that I, I didn't know. Of course I had heard it referenced, but I didn't know until only a few years ago mm. and thought it was uh, particularly interesting because, uh, this small group that I was a part of, uh, we were going through, um, the old Testament, but specifically Genesis, uh, with the, and looking at specific stories as, um, not precursors, but whatever you want to, uh, harbingers, I guess you could say of Christ. Mm. And, uh, so, you know, as we were reading through that story, it was talking about like, uh, the latter is Christ and mm. the, the thing that, that can bridge heaven and earth and that sort of thing. So I thought that was very interesting, but yeah. And so, um, you know, I feel bad because I feel like we're coming down hard on the movie, <laughs> but to me like moments like that are are frustrating to me because so many other moments are so effective. Mm. Right. And as I said before, like Tim Robbins' performance really does a good job of linking all of these things together and even the things I don't care for when I see the emotional impact they have on him, I still feel invested in mm. those things. And so um, so yeah, he, I think he does a, a really great job and I think we understandably, once you discover what the whole movie is, you know, we don't really stray from him. We stay with him the whole time. And I do like, this is a function of the script as a function of the directing. I do like how it will just kind of jump. It'll jump to Vietnam. It'll jump to, uh, interactions with his children, with his first wife, with his new girlfriend and, and stuff like that. And I like the way it jumps around to the point where, you know, when he goes into the bathtub Mm -hmm. that's filled with ice and then he wakes up and is talking about this dream that he had and there's his first wife and it's, and it's played out long enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the key because if it's just him in bed and then they have like a 30 second conversation and then it's back to the tub, it's like, okay, that part's fantasy. But he wakes up and goes to... You know he and his wife like they start, they are initiating sex, and then like one of their kids comes in, so they put them back to bed, interact mm-hmm. with the other kids. Like it's a whole sequence, not right. not even just a scene, mm-hmm. it's a whole sequence. And so, for a moment, it's like, uh, hang on a minute, is that real?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Are they both real? Is it like alternate time? Like, what is going on? But and and I like that, I like the choice to make me confused. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, it it reminds me of uh, David Cronenberg's *Spider*, um, which has this character who is crazy. I believe he's a schizophrenic, but um, and the past and present are 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 at the same. They're happening right now, Mm. and so you know, one character, like two separate characters, will be played by the same person because that's just how he associates these people, and it's just. And you're never, you never quite know what's going on. You're you're never on like uh, a level, I don't know. You never feel like you're on stable ground and that's how it should be. And that's, that's how not a lot of the time, but for a good portion of Jacob's ladder, that's how I felt. And I like that a lot Mm. because it just keeps you on your toes. And then just when you're starting to feel like, okay, I think I've got what's going on, something else will be thrown in there. You know, you, because for so long, it's like, oh, okay, cars are blowing up. And now these army guys are snatching them up and throwing them on the ground. And like, okay, I think I got this. <laughs> this is all purely psychological. Mm-hmm. And there's a conspiracy going on. Oh, and they got to the lawyer and and that <laughs> yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, okay, I think I got this. But then you get that hospital sequence.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. And you're like, well, hang on a minute. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That they would that any hospital like this would ha- exist. And it's like, oh, but it also appears to be maybe like a mental hospital. It's like, still, it's not Arkham Asylum. <laughs> like Ryan. they still need to keep the place clean a little bit. Uh and it's like, oh, and that uh, doctor doesn't have eyes. I think this might be a weird like a dream sequence or something. Yeah. Um and then that wonderful bit of dialogue that is almost Lewis Carroll Ian. Yeah. Of like I'm not dead. And it's like, well, if you're not dead, what are you? Yeah, and it's just like, oh, I, I, I'm alive. Well, then why are you here? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it, and just that circular. It's mm-hmm. it, it's a wonderful bit of dialogue that's mm. very unnerving. And, and that scene
2: is so important. First off, I love that scene on a visceral level because it still creeps me out to this day, and I've I've seen I watched it so many times, and just especially the the practical effects with the shaking head thing, which is yeah. like, you know, um, which I tried to duplicate when I was in film school, but he was shooting on film and I was shooting on digital, mm. not quite the mm. same thing when you, when you really try to get around to it. But, and that's also, that scene is also where it's sort of the, for lack of a better term, the beginning of the end for him or where he finally starts to acknowledge and accept that he is dead and that things are, you know, that you yeah. can't change anything. And, and it's important too that. Jesse shows up in that scene too. Jezebel is, yeah. is there with the doctors and you kind of then get the sense of, you you understand her role in this whole thing too, and <clears throat> I think it is important that they do show not just the good stuff, but for an extended period of time. Because also then in the, after the hospital scene, his Sarah, his first wife, shows up too, and yeah. you kind of get that that love and that peace. But then you also hear that voice like "Dream
0: on," yeah, um, yeah.
2: which one is frightening and just gave me the chills even just saying that. But also, mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's important that that the good stuff is in there because there's. What I kind of see as, for lack of a better term, the thesis of the film is one of the exchanges he has with Lewis, his chiropractor, played mm-hmm. marvelously by Danny Aiello. And oh. he's only in three scenes in this whole movie, but yeah. you remember all of them. Yeah. Those okay. are my
1: three
0: favorite scenes, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Appropriately, he, he he looms very large over the film, as he should, given what we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah,
2: um, but uh, and and he has, and and maybe I'm, I'm jumping the gun here, but I, I love the exchange where he sort of, he says something to the effect, and I was going to write this down, but I didn't because i'm lazy you're but not that kind of podcaster <laughs>
1: no 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 you just do movies badly there you go it's <laughs>
2: There fine. We go. this all makes sense um but where he he says something to the effect of um if if you're if you're not ready to die then um you know then then the angels can be demons like trying to rip your life away but if you've made peace with it then the demons are, are angels taking you from the earth yeah and i think what's so important and one thing that we don't we don't acknowledge is um some of the things that hold us back, some of the things that torment us, some of the things that are, that are, I mean, I mean, if we are not ready to go, then we're not going to be ready to go because of the good things that we have that we don't want to let go of. Yeah. And how those things can be just as detrimental to us under a certain context as legitimately harmful things. But I mean, it, you know, one, one of one thing, which, which, feeds into grief or depression it is is I mean nostalgia to a certain extent uh, holding on to the good things that you that you are not prepared to let go but you'll never get back and uh, I mean uh, on a, I, I guess on a a personal level I love that idea of like what could ghosts and angels and demons actually be could they be some type of you know residual thing from our life we can't let go of? but just even that idea of how the good things can torment us even more than the bad things because of our inability not to let go of them. And that idea of, as Christians, believing in a, in a God that gives us free will. Mm-hmm. And what if that free will extends the point of like, well, we choose not to let go of this thing. Well, how how is that going to affect
0: us in a, in a negative way? Well, and that's very uh, that's very Great Divorce. I don't know if you've ever yes. read The Great yeah, Divorce. Yeah, yeah. I mention it regularly on here. <laughs> and it is definitely a thing that I thought of in during that exchange. Where something that is inherently good, but it's it's eternally good. Mm-hmm. If we're thinking in terms of eterni- eternity, then it will be good. If we're only thinking in terms of like what's temporary, then suddenly something that is thinking in, that is that is meant to be thought of in the long run can seem not merely not good, but in fact horrible torturous Mm -hmm. you know there's a there's a scene in in the great divorce where there's this guy who has this lizard type creature on his shoulder that's constantly whispering things into his ear and he just feels so horrible and then there's an angel that says like may i kill it and he's like no 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 it's fine it's not a big deal he's like no no uh, just let me kill it He goes no i don't need to and then finally he's like you know what just go ahead and kill it and so the angel puts its hands around this lizard dragon thing and like such tremendous heat and tremendous pain and it causes tremendous pain to the man himself that i think at one point he says like you're killing me mm-hmm. you know um which i think is actually said by jacob uh in the hospital scene
2: i think it's not i think it's, 100% I, I think it's the that. bathtub, scene. Oh, bathtub he says scene. you're killing yes, me yes. absolutely
0: and uh and then finally uh the the lizard thing is destroyed and in fact turns into a horse that the guy then climbs on top of and rides into heaven. It's like a moment of triumph following extreme pain that he does not want Mm -hmm. to experience. And then you have so many people who the stuff that they cling to, positive things, you know, it could be their child who passed away, for example. Um, It could be any number of things that aren't inherently bad. In fact, we would view them as quite good, but – because these character these characters have made them ultimate things, the then they are now bad things. Like you know, we talk about you know our our wives or our family or our jobs or our passion or whatever it is. It's like oh, they're my anchor. You know, well an anchor is only is good if you want to stay on the ground. But <laughs> if you actually want to ascend, an anchor is going to keep that from happening. Yeah. And so. That's kind of, and I know that. Read this is a conversation you and I, you and I were having after the, after the film. That discussion of like angels appearing as demons and stuff like that. And I remember mm. you had a you you had a problem with that theologically. Uh, oh yes,
1: yeah. Uh, which I could elaborate on if you want to. Please do. Yeah. So because basically the 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 concept um, there is a belief that has grown in prominence among Christian certain um, Christian climates um, of. The idea of hell being somehow redemptive, mm. so that the that the purpose and Danny Aiello's character says it. Yeah. I mean, he purposefully says like it's not punishment,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and uh, I there, there's no need to get too too deep into this just because I don't think certain people will find it terribly constructive. But that's that's not a uh, a theological perspective that I find supported by Scripture—that mm-hmm. that, that hell, for hell to be a redemptive place—I um, don't think it's ever referred to as such. Not to mention the fact that if we believe there was no choice but for Jesus to die for our sins, well, that goes away if you think hell is a redemptive concept. Mm-hmm. Then so, he didn't have to die. Yeah, if you we just could put just in your through... time, you'll be good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I have a number of issues with that basic tenet of the film, but I also try. Like one of the things that I think, Tyler, you've always done an exceptional job on this show is that that um, it, it. I think it's important to compartmentalize to a certain degree that. I do not demand that the film be theologically sound for for it to either be to to either work well or uh, or even have something of value to say. I think it's important to compartmentalize. Like, okay, I don't think this is theologically accurate. That doesn't mean I dismiss the film outright. You know, like Mm -hmm. a lot of people um, talk about, uh, especially in the horror genre. There's they play with a lot of different themes that you could scrutinize to uh, an unbelievable degree about oh well this is not actually biblical this is you know whatever and i think that you need to keep a good healthy grip on that in your in your own personal life but then also compartmentalize it a little bit and say well artists have freedom to explore Mm -hmm. and they have freedom to 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 dive into certain ideas that maybe aren't correct and or maybe they are it doesn't it doesn't matter and so I had a little bit of a problem with the concept of, hey, these horrific, frightening things that are happening to you are really just intended to be helpful, mm-hmm. because then some of the some of the reactions that they give, like, okay, so, so specifically Elizabeth Pena's character, Jezebel, like the, the there's a tone to her that I think the film uh, is pretty consistent about that she's. She's not great for him. Mm-hmm. Like, like she she's not a terribly supportive love interest in his life. She feels a bit possessive. That that she wants to like she wants his time. A couple of times that's a very pleasant exchange, and a couple of times um, that's a very sort of like violent exchange. Like I'm thinking particularly of the moment where she's in there cooking eggs or something, and then he's lost in his own thought. I can't remember what he's doing, but then she keeps trying to get his attention. Like, and then yeah. she bursts into the scene in in a moment that is indelibly etched into my mind. Like, I remembered it specifically, even though I hadn't seen the film in almost twenty years. Like, she gets into his face, and the moment she gets into his face, her face has changed. Yeah. She's got black eyes, mm-hmm. and she's you know she's very clearly frightening looking. And so I look at that scene. And if the film does want me to believe that even these somewhat demonic figures are intended to be helpful to him, I can't register that scene the same way. And it doesn't quite seem to 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 be of a helpful nature to him, except in the broadest sense of, oh, well, this eventually drives him to, to this other understanding. Um, in which case, I would just disagree with the way they chose to... To illustrate that
2: but yeah. sounds like you have some thoughts no and, and that's a that's a very good point point. and i don't this is probably not anything that's supported by the film itself as much as how i read into it but i almost kind of see jezebel standing separately from everything else that he sees mm. um and i was thinking about this today where if you i mean it seems like her role is pretty clear almost to the extent of it's not necessarily comical but aside from one scene at the beginning where she's changing she's always wearing black clothing mm-hmm. which sort of indicates what kind of figure she is mm-hmm. um but Oh, and her name is Jezebel. Yeah, just throwing that out there. Child's
1: name Gabriel. Her name Jezebel. Yeah. I think yeah. we're seeing a pattern, this. Mm.
2: right? Uh, so, but I, I think it's, I think it's, and especially even that scene at the end where he f- he goes to meet with the scientist and he, and he finds out what the ladder was all about, and that's kind of the scene that leads him to ultimately accept what his fate was. Right. And she is actually very gentle to him in that scene, like trying to get him not to go. Like she's like no, don't go, and she's very gentle about it. But like, hmm. so she as a demonic figure like doesn't want him to accept the truth and kind of wants him to stay. So I actually kind of see her as as standing separately apart from everything else that he sees. Interesting. Um, almost as though she's a as she's the antagonist and everything else she everything else he's seeing is is that idea of of what the Lewis character is describing. Um, but having said that, I, I and I understand what you're saying with the theology thing too. The one the two kind of counterpoints, and I'll admit they're sort of weak counterpoints to that oh. is the idea of maybe he's not going to hell with a capital H, but hell with a lowercase h. Like it is a it is a hell to him because of mm. what he's not able to let go of.
1: A hellish experience, if yeah. you
2: will. Yeah. But then also that idea of and, and you both of you can feel free to disagree with me on this, but I, I also feel like there are instances in, in the Bible where people are confronted with angelic and positive forces but there's there's that sense of i mean there's the word they were afraid there's a fear oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um and it's because they're not they're not used to this this is something else that they they don't know how to react sort of the thing and and we even have to a lesser extent that idea of fear of god which is a different kind of thing but right. fear is certainly i mean the night that jesus was born and the angels appeared to the shepherd like mm-hmm. they were they were sore afraid like and how how could you not be yeah. when you're confronted with these forces which are so outside of you
1: yeah. Um, I don't disagree with that for an inch. Mm-hmm. There's not, the, like, every, like I completely agree the consistent mm-hmm. response to either entering into the, in, in the Bible, the consistent response to entering into the presence of God or experiencing the uninhibited force of an angelic being is consistently fear. Mm-hmm. Nobody was nobody has ever encountered that and been like, yeah, <laughs> I was waiting for you to and show up. And they were up, sore comforted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I will say that The immediate response, and again, I I just feel the need to continually qualify. I do not uh, demand of Adrian Lynn or of Jacob's Ladder that it be theologically accurate. I'm trying to take it on its terms, not mine. But uh, but if I am responding to that from a theological perspective, they also, the consistent response from the angelic beings was reassurance and was comfort. Um, So, the consistent reaction is terror. The consistent response is comfort. And I see this... Sort of interplay of, um, in what's happening in Jacob's Ladder with the overtly negative experience of a bit more violence and a bit more intimidation mm-hmm. and, and and there is definitely something to be said for them sort of pushing him in certain directions that you can see at different places or like actually capturing him and taking him to some place yeah. um, so you could definitely make a point about them navigating him to a certain degree but but they are, the, the one word that I would definitely not call them is reassuring. Yeah. Uh, any, yeah. any of those over now, I that's that's why that's another thing that uh, the character of Lewis just strikes me as so uh, interesting. I know we've referenced the scene briefly, but uh, but such a, an emotionally powerful scene when he breaks into that hospital yeah. and, and and just goes after him to rescue him.
0: And and that is actually uh, sort of the note I wanted to end on, which uh, time wise actually works out pretty well. Um, yeah, the. The thing that got me, and and I was very, it took me a moment to figure out why you had picked this film. But then a couple of things, you know, I was thinking of C.S. Lewis, I was thinking of The Great Divorce and the concept of, you know, in that, like, there's the gray, boring world that they live in (laughs) where everybody's left to their own devices and they make themselves miserable, though they might not immediately think that they're miserable and that that is his depiction of hell but then they take this flying bus up to heaven and there they still have a choice and then the way they described it is like those that choose to for those that choose to stay here that will be seen as purgatory hmm. for those that go back it will remain hell and i remember being like well that's not necessarily theologically sound either, but I'm okay with it because it's C.s. Lewis, and we all understand that not only is he a theologian, but he is also a writer of fiction, and he's trying to put these in, in ways that are maybe interesting to him, mm-hmm. but he also prefaces it with like, "Do not take this as any kind of gospel." <laughs> right, so right. you know to his credit he does that. But um, so I, that's kind of how I saw some of the some of the demonic stuff. Um, but then ultimately, for me. And it's going to be hard for me to not like get choked up as I talk about it now because I was thinking about it while you guys were talking. I wasn't really listening. Um, and I was thinking about this other thing. Uh, that's not true. I was, li- I was listening. I'm going to say like 60%. Um, that scene, to me, I got emotional during it. I've gotten emotional thinking about it because – for, you know, it's, it's come out in like therapy sessions and stuff. It's come out with uh, talking with certain friends that there is this weird element of me that I tend to condemn, uh, in myself, which is, I like the idea of somebody fighting for me. And I recognize that when I, when I say that, I feel like I'm like, I, I'm a damsel in distress or something like that. And just like, no, I'm the one that should fight for someone else. You know, that kind of thing. Um, But then it's just, then the therapist said, like, it's fine to think in those terms. Everybody kind of wants that. They want, you know, sort of a champion. Somebody to come in and say, no, 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 this person is right or this person is okay, you know, because everybody else in the world is going to, uh, not everybody, but the world itself will be rather oppressive at times and assure you, especially if if you're on Jesus' side, like, the world will do in its own way. Will do to you what it did to him, uh, and uh, things did not. As far as the world goes, things did not go great <laughs> for Jesus, and so, and and so like we want somebody, or at least I, I often feel like I want somebody to speak up for me as sort of a uh, not a lawyer or a representative. There's probably a word, an advocate, one could say, um, and in that scene where he is he jacob at this point he is at his absolute most helpless he is seeing these horrible you know he's in a in a horrible place with people that are completely uh uncaring and are doing these weird experiments on him he tries to make an appeal to them and all they do is come back with him with this come back at him with this like circular logic. He then sees the person he trusts seemingly most in the world is among them. And so he feels about as alone as he possibly could. And you're just like, oh, I can't, I I can't deal with this. And it's, it's overwhelming. And at that moment, that's when Louis comes in is not going to be deterred. He brushes past the people that would stop him. He threatens the people that would, Uh, that would take Jacob back. He's not going to be stopped. And there's just something about the way that he does it. That is just like, it's a, it's a very, it's very much a righteous anger, but it's like, I watch it and I just feel so safe. Like in that moment, like I wanted to like get up and cheer and be like, yeah, that's right. You didn't count on Danny Aiello. Did you? Nobody ever does.
1: But, um, he did the right thing. Oh, watch out! <clears throat> Look
0: at you. <laughs> and that's our show, everybody. No, um, and that's why you need somebody like Danny Aiello, who has, who has a, an inherent gentleness to him, but an undeniable physical presence yep. and authority. Mm-hmm. And you know, when he says like, "I'm going to wrap this around your neck," <laughs> you know, it's funny, but it's also like, "Oh, he'll he's going to do it." Yeah. Um, and it's just. That scene, I mean, if we're looking at the Danny A.L. character, and I think it's safe to say he's a God type character, Mm -hmm. you know, he's the one that is explaining the way things are. Mm -hmm. He's the one who is described as looking like an angel with a light behind him. You know, he is a healer. He is, but also just the way that he approaches Jacob with just tremendous amounts of patience you know like when he says okay turn on your right side and then your other right he's he doesn't say it to make fun of him Mm -hmm. he just says it with delight and just like he's everything that i wish that i want god to be Mm -hmm. but most specifically not merely not merely kind and not merely encouraging not merely somebody that, that will listen to jacob but someone that will that will go into if you'll pardon me, yes, we know where, where, where I'm going, that will actually go into ho- a, a hostile environment confidently and say, yeah, no, no, you, you don't get this guy. He's mine, and I'm going to take him out. Watch your toes. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it is one of the most, like, the rest of the movie could have been crap. And I, I don't think I would have given it four stars, but if that scene was exactly the same, and the lead-up to it, obviously this film still would have been like really resonant with me and that combined with that final image which is powerful and the casting of Macaulay Culkin not that he was well known he wasn't Macaulay Culkin yet this yeah. was the same year as Home Alone yeah. but there definitely there's a quality to him that is certainly angelic but then also just charming and reassuring and so to have and to have him leading And this actually speaks to Tim Robbins, who's a tall man. Mm -hmm. So to have this tall man be led by this little kid up these stairs and then that final look back right before he commits completely is so powerful. Like when I put these things together, like I do see, I mean, obviously like the writer himself, you know, uh, drew from several different sources. But, you know, if we're doing what, we do on this show which is try to get the truth where we can Uh, it may not be the whole truth but it is a truth. it is partially the truth that we believe I come away from this film looking at that specifically looking at that hospital scene and saying like that's the God I want to worship the one who will listen to me all day long and will fight for me just as Jesus fought for me you know it would have been maybe a little bit too much for him to come and say like all right, I'm going to take his place. You do everything to me what you were going to do to him. You know, that might have been a bit on the nose, but uh but yeah, it's uh and we can we can uh keep talking, but that that to me anything that happened, not anything, but you know, what happened after could have been less strong than it was and I still would have been like sold. You've got it. You've got me. That scene is amazing. I wish that I – like, I almost want to show the hospital sequence leading up and then that scene. Like, I almost want to show that little, you know, that little illustration to people and say, like, doesn't – don't you want that? Isn't that what you – you know. Um, It's like we talk so much – people talk so much about, like, God's being scary or intimidating or all these kinds of things. And that we like the idea of nice, meek Jesus, which is fine. But at the same time, you also had Jesus speaking authoritatively to demons. You had him, like, driving money lenders out. But then you also have, like, a God who is, yes, loving and forgiving and all of that. But he is willing to call out crap when he hears it. And he is willing to defend you because of his love for you. And, like, that is to me the perfect image of that i've been talking for a while i'm sorry no uh we can we can uh move on if you like
1: well the, the two things that i wanted to say both uh in support of and and reaffirmation of what you're saying like i think it's significant too that louis is not is it lewis or louis i actually can't remember i think
0: they actually say both at some point yeah. so,
1: but uh, his character uh is not another md his character is not a, yeah. he's a chiropractor <laughs> whose job is to put things into alignment. Yeah. And I think that's significant and a, and a good choice. Um, and then I was I was just reading earlier this week, uh, it's uh, Psalm, I think, either 138 or 139, uh, where it says, where could I go to hide from your presence? Mm. And it even says, even if I made my bed in hell, you would find me there. Yeah. Uh, it says Sheol in some translations, but essentially like, even if I went into the depths Uh, of the darkness like even there darkness is not dark to you nothing is beyond you you would find me and so I definitely affirm that that's the that's I think my I, I hesitate to say that anything is the only interpretation, but I think that's the the most specific way you could walk away from viewing that scene is that it is very definitely like no he this figure came in there I I just love I love everything about the scene, but I love that she's like hey keep your voice down and so he gets louder yeah. <laughs> I'm like like I'm looking for Jacob Singer you know yeah. and uh, and I just it, it it really is a very affecting thing to yeah. to uh, to see that somebody would just really no i'm i'm going to go to bat completely on your behalf not because you owe me anything but purely because i'm i'm
0: here to to make you whole and to yeah. line things up for you you know and that does speak to uh one of the questions like how on earth does he know he's there
2: mm-hmm.
0: it doesn't matter like he right. just does mm-hmm. and that's enough um so we can now jim i know that uh, like undoubtedly you have tons more to say like in the end from a spiritual standpoint um having rewatched it today and then having picked it before mm-hmm. like what do you what do you get out of this film like what does it make you think about what does it make you feel i don't know if i if i can really
2: add too much more i mean especially with the, i mean just the conversation about the the L character and that i mean that's that was stuff i didn't even consider and now you and I'm like oh my god now now I kind of want to go back and even like see it again <laughs> and just with with that scope in mind but just I, I don't know I, I guess it uh and I've said it already before but my probably my biggest takeaway the thing that resonates the most with me is that idea of how the things that we love the people that we love can still hold us back if we're not if we're not comfortable or at a good spot in our sort of relationship with I mean for us it'd be God, but for I guess in the story, it just be like their position in, in eternity or whatever sure. and that sort of thing, um which is something which is so fascinating because especially in horror movies we love we love to deal with the the clearly evil versus the good. Mm-hmm. and when those two can kind of blur together, which isn't to say that the you know our our relationships can be evil, but how they can they can sort of themselves be a distraction. Anything can be a distraction in our relationship with God. Like anything can be, anything can be, can turn into an idol or, or can be something that gets in the way, which is something that I, I find absolutely fascinating. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was, as soon as you got done talking about the, the Daniel care, I'm just like, wow, that, that, that would really be a good place to just end this, end this entire episode. <laughs> Cause it's, 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 su- it's such a good point. It's such a strong point. Something I never considered before. Um, the only other thing that I could think of to really kind of, we don't even have to discuss it but that idea of because I kept thinking about how Reed what you were saying about uh, none of these beings seem reassuring or anything Mm -hmm. like that and so it kind of makes the whole argument fall apart in the sense of like oh they're just you know angels trying to strip things away but also we're only seeing it from his perspective of things being stripped away so we don't get to see when he kind of comes around and kind of things like oh this was good so I even wonder if there's one scene at the end where he somehow interacts with Something else that he had encountered before And you see it from a different perspective And you kind of get that sense of like Yeah okay now now he's Because it is kind of sudden how it's like hey it was the ladder and you guys were killing yourselves and then all of a sudden he's accepted it and ready to move on it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense it does make a whole lot of sense because of a scene they cut out which was now that we've already talked about the ending i can like where he he goes back to his apartment and he encounters jezebel again and it's it oh. is clear now that she is a very evil entity mm-hmm. but she changes face until eventually it's like sure her face becomes his face and, and he kind of realized that he's been his own greatest enemy the whole time
1: oh interesting but okay. mm-hmm.
2: adrian lynn thought that it was like at that point he'd already been through so many hells at that, that just another when he's like it was too much so they cut it out but now it seems like there's something missing Hmm. in between the end there
0: well and doesn't it you know imagine that scene right after someone said you're killing yourselves Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. like then it's just like then honestly that explanation takes a thematic element it it can be incorporated into the, the the themes as well and I don't think that would be a, a scene where it's like, oh, this woman is is evil and she's oppressing me. Oh shoot, it's me. <laughs> Just like it was before. Is it been me this whole time? Like it, to me, that would be a really nice visual underlining. But I don't think overselling mm-hmm. um, of of the theme and. And it's and it would also be a really nice surreal image, which is yeah. fun.
2: And, and there, I mean, like I said, it's those scenes are on are on the DVD extras. You can like watch them and see for yourself. You're like, there's another one too where uh, the scientist friend gives him an antidote for the latter, and then he mm. takes it, and things seem fine. But then it turns out things are not fine. Which like, okay, so that scene is pointless then. So sure. I, just, I see why that was cut out. Yeah, of, yeah. But um, and and I guess one of the things that I, I don't like thinking about it too much because it can certainly cause you to to stay awake at night, but. That idea of, was like, I'd like to think I'm at a good place now, but if something happened where it's like, oh, by the way, like, I, I got stabbed and I'm bleeding out on the way. And I'm, if I'm thinking, like, I'm going to die, how at peace am I going to be with that sure. thought? Um, and so you kind of understand, like, yes, his, his son died. And and, and I, I don't know if it, if I'm... Adding something, but I almost kind of feel like there is an undercurrent that maybe he feels like it's his fault a little bit that his son died.
0: Oh, I that's that's what I got. Like, okay. like he got this bike for his son, yeah. and then that bike is mm-hmm. eventually what um, leads to the death.
2: But I, I mean, just that, just that idea of, I mean, death and the afterlife is such a mystery to us all. Mm-hmm. Um, and just yeah, I guess I, I just my my biggest takeaway is like. Uh, have i made peace with the life that i lived and if not like what else do i have to do with that am, am i even at peace with like the the god that i that i profess to love and follow like am i even peaceful with that or can i do more and if like
0: and i feel like that's ultimately where that can be a scary thing if we did not in fact if it was all based on our actions and our attitudes but it is not it is ultimately you know we might have not, we might not have done everything right. We probably take might out of there. Uh, we have not done everything right and uh, but thankfully there's somebody that, that did and that is where we find our hope you know so that in that moment sure I mean if you're bleeding out you're probably going to be instinctively afraid mm. just because like it's you know there's an element of like I get this is it. I guess this is it mm. all right the finality of that can be a little frightening mm-hmm. you know so there's definitely that I wouldn't begrudge anybody that but mm-hmm. um, but like I think I think there would be hopefully you know I believe the last line of the film is he looks so peaceful
2: yeah and, and I, I love that because what what makes him peaceful is that idea of like is an idea of a reunion like he mm-hmm. w- he was lamenting the loss of a son until he realized at the end like I'm going to be reunited with him yeah and once again heaven is such a, a nebulous idea to us but we do I think, and I don't mean to speak for every Christian, but we do kind of have that idea of like, we are going to be reunited with the ones that we love in Christ at, you know, at some point in the end. And that's what ultimately causes him to, to give up not, not to give up, but to kind of give in. And finally, that's why he looks so peaceful. And because yeah. of that idea of reunion, which is such a beautiful
0: idea. Mm-hmm. So I think we will go ahead and leave it there. Um, listeners, if you haven't seen Jacob's ladder in this last conversation, it's probably pretty tough, because <laughs> I don't think we specified plot at all. Um, no. but, uh, but yeah, so uh, we would welcome your uh, feedback. You can leave a comment on the post for this episode at morethanonelesson.com. You can email me, tyler, morethanonelesson.com. You, uh, you can find me on Twitter, at More Lessons. You can find Reed on Twitter. At read Lackey. At Reed Lackey. Where can people find you? on twitter sure uh nolan fixes teeth is the handle you got to change that handle by the way because i I don't get it
2: well i'll explain it to you please do all right so years ago before or actually when batman begins first came around um i had a dream that christopher nolan was my dentist (laughs) and i remember coming into work the next day and telling my friend and saying i guess the subconscious thought being if he can fix the batman franchise he can fix my teeth so was
1: now was this after you had had a psychotropic drug in Vietnam, or was it?
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, so after I was stabbing my friend in the gut with a bayonet, I was explaining my dream to him. Um,
0: He's like, "This is not what I want to think about as I die." Yeah.
2: So n- Nolan fixes it, and I've thought about changing it, but then I've not
0: did that you've not did that <laughs> and that is the listen, note we are ending on listen uh,
2: I'm, I'm on east coast time so right now it's it's uh it's one thirty for me in the
0: well morning, so. uh you better rally because we've got a whole other <laughs> podcast know, right so all right thank you everybody uh for listening jim thank you so much for being here thank and you and thank you for uh suggesting this film reed as always thank you for being here thank you and we'll get you guys next time bye